1: The Guardian.
0: Welcome to Politics Weekly Extra. I'm Jonathan Friedland, an executive politician from New York, holed up in his office, threatened with impeachment, mired in scandal. We're not talking about Donald Trump earlier this year, but rather about Andrew Cuomo. Governor of New York and mired by a double scandal. On the one hand, accused of sexual harassment by senior and junior colleagues alike, claims he has mainly denied, and also involved in a scandal that goes to what many people have thought had been his finest hour as governor handling the coronavirus pandemic, with the accusation that he and his administration covered up. Deaths and the number of deaths in nursing homes. So he is in a kind of pincer movement of scandal, and many people thinking his job is hanging by a thread. That is a fascinating political story if it were to happen in any of America's 50 states, but happening in New York gives it a whole other level of drama, partly because New York is just so powerful, the kind of financial and some would say cultural engine of the United States of America but also because New York politics is just so different from the rest of the country. It has its own political culture, hardball, bare-knuckle style of politics, street-fighting politics going back decades, but also because of this curious clash of cultures between the city, which is always super liberal, and, on the other hand, state-level politics, the governor's mansion sitting there upstate in Albany, And whole parts of New York State, which are pretty traditional conservative, even Trump country. So New York politics is completely fascinating, which is why I wanted to talk to a real specialist in that field. And she is Alexis Grinnell. She writes a political Column for The Nation magazine. She's covered New York politics for a long time. She worked in it for a while, worked very briefly uh, long ago for Andrew Cuomo. But she's also the founder of a public affairs consultancy advising campaigns, even occasionally political candidates. And they are called Pythia Public. So I began my conversation with Alexis Grinnell by asking her what was the meaning of that name, Pythia Public.
1: Well, the Pythia were the high priestesses of the Oracle of Delphi, and they were required to be 50 years of age or older, and they could only be women. And so I uh, actually cannot get credit for that incredibly feminist concept, which my wonderful partner came up with, but that is the uh, Greek origins of the Pythia.
0: So that is a public affairs firm. You advise people. You also write and uh, comment on New York politics for The Nation magazine. Tell us us just a little bit about your background, where you come at this from and how steeped you are in the politics of, of, of this city and this state.
1: Certainly. So I've been working in New York politics since 2006 and writing about it for nearly a decade. And since New York is such a heavily macho place. Honestly, it has uh, been so much of my work to focus the connection between policy outcomes and frankly, pissing matches, which is frankly, a terrible way to have a public civic life, but in fact, defines so much of our experience here. And the dynamic between New York City and New York State, the governance structure of the state means that the city is really a creature of the state, which has ultimate authority over so many what would seem like local issues. So it's a very strange governance structure that often renders the city to be secondary in a way, even though the city is both the political power base and financial power base of the state. So it's a bizarre relationship.
0: I mean, when I lived in the United States, people so often would say about New York that it's not America. You know, it's not like the rest (laughs) of the country in terms of culture, demographics, sort of habits, diet. It's different from the rest of the country. But you'd also hear that from people in politics, that they would actually, you know, if the New York primary was coming up, suddenly all the kind of pundits and experts in a presidential election, you'd have to have a different cast of characters because politics is just so idiosyncratically different in new york and you've i think given us two pointers and i want to drill into both of them you, you mentioned this really interesting difference between the liberal mainly state a city of new york and then the state which can often have very different politics but you use this word macho and the, the machismo and sort of hardball nature of new york politics a lot of people will think american politics in general is like that so what sets new york politics apart on that particular measure
1: So I would completely agree with you that politics is deeply idiosyncratic and also deeply local. Having run a presidential campaign does not qualify you particularly to understand local politics in New York, which um, is such a rat's nest of patriarchy at times, to be quite honest. And that Mm. goes exactly to your next question about machismo. So New York City has never had a female mayor or a woman as governor, in fact, In 2018, we elected a woman to be attorney general. Letitia James! New York's new attorney general has big plans. That was a, a really unique moment. Yes, we've had women as lieutenant governors who are, you know, sort of secondary to the governor. But to have a woman in a solo executive capacity in a statewide office... Uh, was historic. And that's embarrassing. But what's interesting to see is that locally, there's been this incredible election of young, primarily female lawmakers, and, and men as well. But the common theme here is that they're unabashedly and unapologetically feminist. And that's deeply tipping the scales of power in New York, in part because we have now a uh, majority of Democrats in the Senate, a a massive majority in the Assembly, and the governor has significantly less power to an extent. He still has tremendous power in the budget making process, and that's a constitutional problem. But there are more primarily young women in the legislature willing to speak up and slap him back.
0: People imagine New York in a way as being the leading edge city in the world. I mean, the most progressive place they would imagine. How has New York got these really quite retrograde attitudes to these kinds of, you know, to a basic social question there?
1: Well, I think, you know, it's interesting. We've seen an incredible number of Republican women across the country elected to executive office. And there's a lot of thinking about why that might be the case compared to Democratic women. Yes, New York is this sort of. Shining city on a hill in many ways. And of course, we're talking about the city, not the state. But we're also the financial capital. This is where Wall Street is, and Wall Street makes up the bulk of our budget. So there's definitely a driving interest from the financial services sector when it comes to power. And that is heavily skewed male. And I don't think it's an accident that we see that perspective reflected in our leadership.
0: Right, so that so that there's a kind of ingrained, baked-in male bias there in some of the kind of absolutely you know, the the sort of engines of of American politics. Let's pr- pr- get to but the person who is at the uh, center of New York politics and is in a way the prompt for our conversation today, and that is the governor of the uh, state, uh, Andrew Cuomo, uh, three-term governor now in in real deep political trouble. I, I'm keen to talk about him. For Many listeners to this, the association they. have with the name cuomo will be with his father and it's amazing that you mentioned earlier the shining city on the hill because that's the phrase that mario cuomo made enormously famous Mm -hmm. and we're going to hear a little bit of the speech that in some ways sealed his reputation back in 1984. this is the voice of mario cuomo father of the current governor of new york in many ways we are a shining city on a hill But the hard truth is that not everyone is sharing in this city's splendor and glory. A shining city is perhaps all the president sees from the portico of the White House and the veranda of his ranch, where everyone seems to be doing well. But there's another city. There's another part to the shining city. The part where some people can't pay their mortgages and most young people can't afford one where students can't afford the education they need and middle-class parents watch the dreams they hold for their children evaporate. Alexis, it does still make your spine tingle just hearing that.
1: Mario was an absolute giant, um, the philosopher king, as he you know, it was known because of his incredible intellectualism that you know, really defined the passion and direction of the Democratic Party for his era.
0: And, you, and you, you were saying well, while we were hearing that, that you yourself taught that speech.
1: Yes. When I was in graduate school and I was a, a teaching assistant, I had to teach a section on um, speech writing. That was one of the examples I used for my students. You know, Mar- Mario was an incredible mind and writer and thinker with uncommon depth. And that speech is, you know, clearly emblematic of his reach.
0: So he was governor for a long time through the 80s into the actually early 90s. Sketch for us the contrast with what his son is like having heard the father.
1: The reaction to uh, Mario's intellectualism by the son has been to sort of Uh, frame this kind of hard-knuckled, gets-it-done practicalism in contrast. I I think this is a very, in some ways, academic notion because one of the major differences and most important is who's broken the law. And none of Mario Cuomo's close associates are in jail for corruption. Tonight, his former top aide, Joe Prococo, a man at one time so close to the Cuomo family,
0: Mario Cuomo would refer to him as the third Cuomo son. Well, Joe Bicocco was sentenced
1: to six years in prison today after his conviction on federal corruption charges. Mario Cuomo was not a, the subject of several investigations, federal, local, and state. So the contrast is really not one that we should be discussing, I think, in terms of political analysis, although that's certainly interesting. And I'm always, you know, enjoy hearing that to some extent. But when it really comes to what matters, there is a significant and serious set of investigations taking place into the current governor who has been accused not only of gross sexual misconduct which is a violation of the New York State Human Rights Law that he proudly signed in 2019 but it is also there are serious violations of what's called the public officers law which dictate the rules that elected officials must abide by to avoid conflicts of interest he wrote a book at the height of the pandemic, for which he was paid a $4 million advance. And in that book, he misconstrued and cooked the numbers of nursing home deaths to portray himself as more of a hero of the pandemic. The lying about nursing home deaths is the other investigation.
0: So you set out for us there the two sets of charges that are hanging over Andrew Cuomo. First, the allegation that he sexually harassed colleagues. He's denied almost all of those charges but they are credibly and multiply made against him and there's this claim that his administration covered up the extent of deaths uh, in nursing homes due to the pandemic. Uh, the New York State Health Department has confirmed that members of uh, the Andrew Cuomo team altered a report from that department in order to omit the full number of patients in nursing homes killed by COVID. Uh, the Cuomo administration's defense is that they insist those changes were made solely because of concerns about the data's accuracy. But those are the two sets of charges against Cuomo and Team Cuomo. I just want to take a step back to to who he is and what kind of personality he is and how what these charges, how they fit in with the overall profile. I mean, we were talking about his father, who was, as you said, on this sort of elevated plane, often called, thought of as sort of indecisive. Hamlet on the Hudson, they called him back in the 80s about whether or not he would run. And the the profile of his son of Andrew Cuomo was the, the kind of the opposite. This, as you said, practical, hardball guy who gets things done. And 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 what I'm keen to know is whether progressive opinion. You know, you write for The Nation magazine, which is really the journal for the progressive left in the United States. What relationship they had to that kind of hardball practicality, of. Andrew Cuomo, before these two scandals broke, whether people thought, look, you know, it's true, he, the guy is a real street fighter, but, you know, at least he's our street fighter and he gets things done for us. Was that his standing?
1: So I want to I address two things, actually. I think the, you know, it's interesting you just described uh, the uh, referencing of Mario Cuomo as Hamlet on the Hudson, indecisive, ultimately declined to run for president, as somehow these are weak character traits. Mario Cuomo thought about running for president and decided not to, to continue out his term as governor and serve the people of New York. He also declined a seat on the Supreme Court when it was offered to him by the Clintons. Deciding not to seek higher office and do the job you were elected to do is not a sign of weakness or indecision. It's thoughtfulness. It's commitment to service. It's actually a lack of grandiosity that we should be applauding that I'd love to see in more politicians, people who set appropriate boundaries and limits and say, you know what, just because I can run for president doesn't mean I should. And this construction of the governor as practical and hard-nosed is also a gendered analysis that the facts don't support. Being a brutal and domineering executive who sets up A kind of hunger games for your affection is not productive. The governor is obsessed with image making and the performance of power. That's very seductive. And a lot of people are frankly fooled by it. But the actual outcomes don't correspond to a more productive and uh, effective government
0: really fascinating. I think your point about performance is, is it really goes to something which is important about Andrew Cuomo and his profile, which became even international last year, which right. was just as Donald Trump was doing these troubling press conferences talking about injecting himself with bleach, etc. Right. You could click over and go to the other channel, and there was the governor of New York appearing, and I italicized the word appearing, to be sober and led by the data and He very- had a
1: perfect foil in Donald Trump. Yeah. And, you know, we also have an analysis out of Columbia that you know, the governor got into a pissing match with the mayor, who he's basically, frankly, obsessed with smacking around and being the alpha male over to the detriment of about 30,000 lives we could have saved. Columbia calculated that if the state of New York had closed down a week earlier, we would have had considerably less death. But the governor was too busy fighting with the mayor, who wanted to close down at that time and needed to prove himself to be the alpha male. You look at states like Washington, where Jay Inslee is the governor, he doesn't get into fights with the mayor of, the, you know, of Seattle. They worked effectively together and had considerably less death. And Washington was also a locus of the pandemic in the United States. He also didn't write a book touting his own leadership abilities in the middle of a pandemic. I mean, Churchill didn't write the history of World War II in 1943.
0: All right. So you've only really, you know, given the tip of the iceberg of these horrendous allegations against him. Nevertheless, polling last month uh, showed that half of New Yorkers want Cuomo to stay, despite these scandals, and this despite the fact that New York's. Uh, two senators, Schumer and Gillibrand, both say enough's enough. Most leading Democratic politicians want him gone. And yet, A, he's still there. And B, there are, there are those polling numbers. What, what Explain to us how come he has survived this jaw dropper of a scandal?
1: Well, I wouldn't say he has survived yet. He is currently treading water that's about up to his eyeballs. But, you know, polling is sort of a weird metric here. 30 years ago, during the Clarence Thomas, Anita Hill hearings. Over the course of nine days, 11 national polls were conducted. And by a stinging margin, uh, they showed that Americans believed Clarence Thomas over Anita Hill. A year later, those numbers reversed entirely. And there's been quite a lot of analysis about why that is. Did people really swing so dramatically in the other direction? Or does snap polling over a period of emerging and unfurling news events actually fail to capture what's going on. Given
0: all that, what do you think are his chances of clinging on, surviving to the end of his term in 2022? Or one way or another, do you think he's gonna be pushed out?
1: I think a lot of this depends on, frankly, results of the investigation by the Attorney General's office, and what that will mean for the sort of satellite powers that control, to an extent, his fate. This governor is never going to resign. He's frankly uh, shameless in that respect. But there's sort of the, the two scenarios are whether or not he gets impeached by the legislature, or if the national Democrats essentially shove him out of the airlock, where it's a problem for President Biden or Speaker Nancy Pelosi to have this guy hanging out there. And the card that Cuomo has to play is essentially declining to run for a fourth term to sort of prolong and preserve his term. But do we think it's appropriate for the leader of the most important Democrat in New York State to be undermining the gains of the Me Too movement and having your staff help you write a book during government hours using public monies These are taxpayer-supported positions to further the governor's vanity and image-making that he's being paid $4 million for. All of this is the same idea that I'm sort of untouchable and uh, beyond the law and privilege of my office. That's absurd and anti-democratic.
0: And while all this is going on in Albany, meanwhile, in New York City itself, the mayor of that city can't run again. His term is Bill de Blasier. His term is about to end and there are there will be a mayoral race. I think it's just nine or 10 weeks away uh, mm-hmm. for power in that city. And you've told us how much there is the antagonism historically between the mayor of New York City and the governor of the state, or at least tension. Uh, just talk us through that race because it's an exciting and compelling one. Who are the runners and riders to be the next mayor of New York City?
1: Sure. And for your um, listeners, I want to disclose that my business partner is in fact working on one of those races all for Eric Adams, although we have no contact or discussion about it and I have no idea what's going on.
0: Duly noted. Thank you.
1: It's a bit of a of a clown show, to be honest. We have um, the celebrity effect of Andrew Yang dropping into this race, which has reproduced an unfortunate model that we saw four years ago in the presidential campaign where somebody with high name recognition could sort of sweep into a campaign for office that they're fundamentally unqualified for. And, and, and- he's, the,
0: he's the, we should just say, he's the tech entrepreneur who did run a kind of quixotic campaign for, in the Democratic presidential primaries in 2020.
1: As commander-in-chief, I think we need to be focused on the real threats of the 21st century. And what are those threats? Climate change, artificial intelligence, loose nuclear material, military drones and non-state actors. It's sort of, been this strange experience of seeing someone treat the New York City mayor as a consolation prize for a failed presidential bid when what we say in the United States is that actually the mayor of New York City is the second hardest job in America. It's an incredibly diverse, complicated city. And um, Andrew Yang is stunningly uninformed is the really kindest way to put it. Hmm. And it's a little shocking and breathtaking, I think, to see the way in which celebrity, and certainly money. There are PACs getting involved here, political action committees, which can raise unbelievable sums of money and spend on behalf of a candidate, as long as they don't coordinate with that candidate. PACs are assembling to support various candidates. And it's also an incredibly wide and varied field. And New York City politics are very (laughs) uh, funny and interesting. And there's still quite a lot of time
0: is it possible that this nearly 100-year run without a woman uh, winning that office, could that be broken in 2021?
1: So there are three women running for mayor in New York City, and only one of whom is polling out of the single digits.
0: Who Who's the one that's polling outside um, single figures?
1: That's Maya Wiley. Maya Wiley is a longtime civil rights lawyer. She served briefly in the de Blasio administration, and she's been on MSNBC for the last few years, quite a bit, breaking down the legality or lack thereof of the Trump administration.
0: Now, lots of people are interested in New York just because it's New York, but there it does often, you know, that has world interest. But there is a a read across often for wider US politics. I remember the 1993 victory for Rudy Giuliani was a bit of a straw in the wind for Mm -hmm. the big Republican gains that would come the following year, in fact, the same Republican wave that would sweep out Mario Cuomo and make him lose yeah. the governor's mansion uh, upstate. So, what will it tell us this election in 2021? What will it tell us about wider politics, do you think?
1: Uh, you know, I'm I'm, I'm loath to forecast and extrapolate to so far out. I think it's a little bit of a fool's game, especially when it comes to local politics here in New York, because there's honestly, I have no way of telling you who is going to be mayor right now and what that will mean. And I wouldn't pretend to do that 10 weeks out.
0: No, good, good good policy. Although but presumably you think it will be a democrat. I mean, I mentioned the Giuliani yeah, thing definitely. in 93 because that was a republican who managed to win in a democratic city and but you're not you're not holding your breath for that in New York in 2021.
1: No, I mean not only does New York have a massive democratic enrollment advantage over republicans, but the republican field is unbelievably weak at the moment. I think the the mayor's race is won and lost in the primary this year and that takes place in June.
0: Now, Alexis, we do always ask our guests on the podcast a what else question. So this week, our what else question is this. I want to ask you about Joe Biden's formal announcement that he will end what's been called America's longest war, pulling out troops from Afghanistan in time for the 20th anniversary of a moment that, of course, all New Yorkers uh, remember, namely the 9-11 attacks. What are your thoughts on the politics of this move? And how do you read how it's going to play out?
1: Well, I I think on a just substantive level, that's politics aside, that has been so long in coming. And we are so deeply desperate, I think, as a nation to be fighting fewer wars. I I went to college in the backdrop of 9-11, and I can't believe we've been in Afghanistan ever since.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's something like five times the amount of time that American troops were involved in the Second World War. You know, that was four years. And this has been 20. I mean, it is an extraordinary thing. Um, uh, You know, and I think my guess is that there's nowhere really for Republicans to criticise him, because it's something that Trump wanted to do himself. So there's not really any, I'm guessing there won't be much political pushback to
1: this. I doubt it. And I think we would all like to spend our money on something else.
0: Alexis Grinnell, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. This has been a fascinating conversation. Thank you.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: And that is all for this week. Now, at the end of last week's podcast, I asked you to send in any suggestions you have for what we should be looking into and you definitely delivered. Please do keep sending in those very nice messages. I've been reading all of them, lots of brilliant ideas for future podcasts. So send them to podcasts at theguardian.com. That's podcasts at theguardian.com. Or you can reach me on Twitter, my handle there, very simple. It's just at friedland make sure also to listen to wednesday's episode of uk politics weekly where jessica elgott explains why the conservatives might just have met their match with the latest scandal involving a former prime minister you can find that in the same feed you found us but for now it's goodbye the producer is danielle stevens and i'm jonathan friedland please stay safe and thanks as always for listening
1: or go to amazon.com slash news ad free.